If you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 14. We've been doing a little mini-series on being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we'll be looking at our third part. We are working through this Gospel verse by verse, but we've been camping out right here on verses 17 through 20 of John chapter 14. And so this morning we hope to finish what what I would call like a little mini-series on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So again, John chapter 14. Let me read verses 17 through 20, and then we'll continue our time together. It says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look another week at this glorious passage about Christ promising us the Holy Spirit that would come and dwell our hearts and allow us to have power over sin and power over death and power to live a holy life. And I pray that as we look at this text this morning and as we learn a little bit more about what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, that you would transform each heart, that you would help us to walk in your light, and that we would realize that we're part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us this morning as we look at this topic. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, needless to say, explaining the Holy Spirit can be a difficult thing to do, right? It can be like, uh, you know, as Christians, sometimes we could get uncomfortable about how is it that we talk about the Holy Spirit. I mean, when somebody asks you about God, you can easily say, well, I believe that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and that he's holy and there's no one like him. Or if someone were to ask you, can you describe the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, most Christians could easily say, Well, that's God's son. He was born to the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead, and now he's ascended back up into heaven. But when you ask a Christian to tell you about the Holy Spirit, oftentimes that Christian can have like a little bit of a worried look on their face. Like, is this a trick question? Like, you're asking me a kind of a difficult one. Now that you're asking me about the Holy Spirit, sometimes you might be a little dazed and confused. It's like maybe that you just ask someone to describe to you the second law of thermodynamics, or you just ask someone to describe to you the theory of quantum physics, or you just ask somebody to describe to you how we get nuclear energy out of a reactor. I mean, sometimes that's how we feel. We're like, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, it's powerful. He's powerful. He's amazing, but we don't know exactly what to say. I remember as a kid growing up, for whatever reason, anytime somebody mentioned the Holy Spirit, I just had this image of a tripod. Why? I have no idea. I knew that the Spirit wasn't supposed to have flesh, so I'm just like thinking of some type of tripod. Go ahead. When you get home, ask your kids what comes to mind when they think of the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you'll get a few interesting comments about what God might bring to mind or maybe something else brings to mind when they try to think about the Holy Spirit. We might have to make you go through the membership class all again just to make sure you're orthodox. I remember a couple of years ago teaching our children about the Holy Spirit. I simply asked one of my children, do you know about the triune God that we've been talking about? Can you tell me the three parts of uh, three persons of who God is? And my child looked at me and said, yeah, I can do that. I said, go for it. And this child said, well, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Moses. <laughs> I realized at that moment I have failed as a parent somehow We've, we've exalted the law that is represented by Moses into now the Trinity. I've failed. I need to exalt grace up into that area. But you know how it is when you're talking to kids about the Holy Spirit. We worked really hard to do a better job. And so a few years later, I asked one of my kids if they could tell me the three persons of the Holy Spirit. And this kid at the time was about three years old. And this kid was sucking their thumb. And I'm putting them to bed at night. And I said, hey, do you remember us talking about the Trinity? And they're like, yeah, I remember that. Remember, there's God the Father. And this kid's sucking their thumb, like three years old. They're nodding, like, yeah, I got it, Dad. And I'm like, there's God the Son. And my kid's like nodding their head, sucking on that thumb, just get, I got it. And I was like, and then there's God the Holy Ghost. The thumb came out. My kid said, 
That's the freaky one. <laughs> so you never know what to really think when you think about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is obviously part of our triune God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. And we've been looking a lot at the Father and the Son, but we need to understand a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. And that's why I've been taking my time, just a little bit, to make sure we're understanding what does it mean to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As I was studying for this sermon this week, I read an article about five misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit. And so I took that article and I modified it a little bit. I added a couple of my own. And, uh, and I want to give you what I think are five common misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit. All right. Number one, the Holy Spirit comes in spurts. It's simply not true, right? Sometimes we think this isn't in your notes. It's just part of the introduction. Sometimes people get confused and they would say the Holy Spirit comes in spurts. And that's just simply not true in the new covenant believer. The Holy Spirit is always with us. His power is always at work. And as the spirit of truth, he's constantly teaching us and reminding us of all that Christ has said in his word. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. The Holy Spirit may have come and gone in the Old Testament, but we've been seeing how that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is here to stay. That means that the Holy Spirit is at work at camp and at conferences, but he's just as much at work in your everyday experience on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday when you're in his word and enjoying Christian fellowship with other believers. A second misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit would be this. Number two, the Holy, Spirit works, the Holy Spirit's work is always spectacular. This is also not true. The Holy Spirit does not regularly produce miracles in the life of a believer. We're just not seeing that on a day-by-day -day basis. And you know what? It's okay. We don't have to. You don't have to look for another miracle in order to think that somehow the Holy Spirit is alive and well in your life. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit does convict the world of sin, shine light on the Lord Jesus Christ, transform believers from the inside out, instruct our minds to be renewed, and, and, and empower us for service. And what I found is that people are often just looking for the spectacular. And what I want to encourage you to look for is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers as taught in the Bible. And the top thing on that list, get this, is that the Holy Spirit wants you to be holy. More important than you seeing a sign or a wonder more important than you experiencing a miracle today in your life is that you would say no to sin and that you would say yes to Christ and that you would walk in obedience to God and that you would be a holy Christian. That means a whole lot more to God than to somehow that you could tell some story about some miracle God did in your life. Now, do I believe that God still does miracles? Yes, I do. But I'm just saying, the greatest miracle ever done was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he was raised from the dead to make you holy. And what would mean a lot more to me as Christians is that we're not looking for a God story here and a God story there and a miracle here and a miracle there. How about you keep your feet to the fire? And how about you walking in the light of Jesus Christ and being a holy person? That's way more important to God than him showing us another miracle. A third misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit would be this. Number three, the Holy Spirit is at his best when he is spontaneous. The Holy Spirit is at work 24-7. What do you mean about the Holy Spirit being spontaneous? It's not like the Holy Spirit only shows up for special occasions. That might have been true of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, as we've been discussing. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is always at work. He's convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. He's transforming us. We've mentioned all this many times. The Holy Spirit is at work every moment of every day. Don't look for him in spurts. Don't look for him just to be spontaneous. Now, I, I'm all for being spontaneous. At any moment, at any given time, you're welcome to throw your hands up in the air, and you're welcome to witness to your neighbor, and you're welcome to give a special gift to the Lord, and you're welcome to call a friend and encourage them. 
But that's not just spontaneity. That's just being spirit-filled that every moment of every day, we're thinking thoughts like that. Hopefully, it's your character to walk in truth and encourage others in the truth every single day. I don't think we should just think about it as spontaneity. Number four, another misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit would be this. The Holy Spirit is the Christian's trump card. I'm not talking about the president. Right? I'm talking about playing cards. Sometimes when you're talking to somebody about an issue, they may say, well, I've prayed about it, and the Spirit told me this is what I'm going to do. And that's like taking the ace of spades and laying it down on the table and saying, boom, beat that. I mean, who in their right mind is going to be like, oh, the Holy Spirit told you to do that? Well, pfft, by all means, who am I to give advice into your life? And if we're not careful, sometimes, and I would say in a mystical way, Somebody might say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to do this or that, and that's like laying that trump card down instead of saying, well, wait a second, God's Spirit works through God's Word, and God's Spirit shines light on Christ, and Christ is the living Word. So whatever decision you're about to make better be biblical, and the Holy Spirit hopefully is enlightening your heart and your mind to see the principles of Scripture so that you can make a God-honoring decision, and if you are, we ought to all be in agreement that that's a God-honoring decision and not you just walk in and lay down the ace of spades and everybody else zips up their mouth. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He is the spirit of truth, and he enlightens you, and he magnifies the truth of God's word in your life. A fifth misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit's work would be this. Number five, the Holy Spirit doesn't work as powerfully as he used to. So this person may be thinking, well, people are not speaking in tongues. I don't see people getting healed and I don't hear prophecy like it's written all about in the New Testament. And so in one sense, I would say that is true. The Holy Spirit is not working today in exactly the same way he worked on the day of Pentecost. He's just not. And I'm saying that's okay. That was a special time and a special transition where God was highlighting the gospel and the new covenant being fulfilled by the blood of Christ. And we understand from our reading of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, that love never ends, and then the text says this, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, I believe that text is talking about when the Word of God, which is completely perfect, is given in its entirety at the end of the book of Revelation in 95 AD, then we're no longer in need of certain miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy to give us further and ongoing divine revelation because it's all contained in the Bible. And so what I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit is just as much at work today as He's ever been in saving souls in highlighting his word, in the work of progressive sanctification. And so we see God's spirit at work every day. And I would say that these five misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit, and there are many more, are exactly why I thought it would be appropriate for us to take our time in the study of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here in John 14, 17 through 20. Now remember, these verses are given in the upper room discourse. Jesus is only 12 to 18 hours away from the cross, and he wants to encourage his disciples that even though Jesus will be leaving earth, he will ask the Father to send another helper to be present with them and to be in them. And in verses 17 through 20, we see a threefold promise as Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure. So on your outline, we're going to do a quick review. Here's that threefold promise. Number one, the Holy Spirit abides in you. Here we talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. According to verse 17, he points us to the truth of God's word. He points us to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We also saw how the Holy Spirit is unseen by the world. The world cannot see or comprehend the Holy Spirit without first being saved. Only by coming to Christ can your eyes be opened so that you can see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then we talked about how the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Here's where we spent most of our time in this series. Not outside of you. He's not all around you. He is in you if you are in Christ. And remember how we talked about how the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament 
There is the sense of a temporary presence with Moses, how when Moses would go up on top of the Mount Sinai and God would speak to him and he would receive the Ten Commandments and come down off the mountain that his face would glow and they would put a veil over his face. And there's the idea of a temporary presence with Moses and other prophets in the Old Testament for a special work. There was also the idea of the Holy Spirit being the giver of prophecy and scripture. And then there was the idea of the presence of God in the spirit of God residing in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then what we saw was in the New Testament, those things change. There is no longer a temporary presence as with Moses, but there's a permanent presence in Christ. The Holy Spirit is still the giver of prophecy and scripture in the New Testament. But then we saw last week how Christ replaces the temple. Like Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. And the text clearly says in John 2, he was talking about the temple of his body. So we see that the Holy Spirit no longer in the new covenant dwells inside of a temple in Jerusalem, as special as that is to travel to Jerusalem. I've got news for you. There's not a temple on the temple mount. It's a mosque. So his his presence isn't there today. That's for sure. It's been torn down. So the presence of God is in the person of Christ, who then tells his disciples the Holy Spirit's coming to dwell in you, Pentecost, and then the disciples and the apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament remind us that now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of the living God dwells in you. And that's where we get to this this, uh, second part of our outline where we saw Jesus will never abandon you. Jesus will never abandon you. The second part of that threefold promise, number one, again, the Holy Spirit will abide in you. Number two, that Jesus will never abandon you. And we talked last week a little bit about how he will not leave you as orphans. Verse 18, he will not leave you alone. He will not leave you comfortless. No more about temporary presence, but instead we have a permanent presence. And we talked last week about how Jesus said that he will come to you. When Jesus says, I will come to you at the end of verse 18, he is saying, I will return. I will not abandon you. I will not forget about you. I will not dissolve our relationship. And so we should be encouraged today by this truth. We never have to fret and we never have to fear and we never have to feel alone. Jesus will come. He says, I will find you. No matter how far, no matter how long, I will find you and I will take you to myself. And so whatever you're going through in your life today, you can rest assured that Jesus will come. In fact, he's already here in his living word and he's dwelling inside of you. And he will also come back for you at the rapture or at the second coming. And this is about where we left off last week, verse 19. Your next blank says, he will live and give life in his name. He will live and give life in his name. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Jesus is saying that he's about to go to the cross. His life on earth will be over. And at least for three days and three nights, the the Bible says that his body will lay in the grave. And on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is one of the strongest references to the resurrection outside of the gospels themselves. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul's referring to himself, he appeared also to me. Now, the scriptures clearly teach the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I don't know if you realize this, but in John 14, 19, and here in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus hints at that in a little while, the world will see me no more but you will see me. He's saying this, 
after the resurrection, he would make his appearance specifically and possibly exclusively to his disciples and other believers. Some commentators on this passage here would say Jesus did not reveal himself openly at the marketplace or at the temple like he had prior to the crucifixion. But after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, he made a point to make his appearance to his disciples and to his followers because he had given them special enlightenment. And that may mean what it means here back to 1 Corinthians 14, 19, when he says that the world will not see me, but you will see me. Or in that 1 Corinthians passage, it says that he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, signifying that he's specifically appearing to believers. I would say it's because Jesus lives that you can live. It's because of the resurrection that you too can be resurrected. You don't have to be a dead man walking in bondage to your sin. You can be an alive man in the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus lives you can have life in his name. And because Jesus lives, you can have life and life eternal. And because Jesus lives, you can have the confidence that though your outer man may one day die, your inner man will live forever. And that's part of the beauty of Christ's promise. He will not abandon us. He's coming back to us. He's bringing life in his name. You will have that eternal life. And even though you die, you will still live and be with him forever. And that's pretty encouraging. That's a pretty encouraging message where Jesus is saying, number one, the Holy Spirit's going to abide in you. Number two, I'm never going to abandon you. And here's the third promise that Jesus is making in this upper room discourse. Number three, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you will be united with Christ. Look at verse 20. We're saying that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you will be united with Christ. Then Jesus gives this incredible promise, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. When Jesus says in this verse 20, in that day, I believe that he's talking about the days following the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I think that he's talking about the day of the new covenant being made alive and in full effect through the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the day when you live in Christ. He's talking about the day when Christ lives in you. This is Galatians 2.20. This is what Paul says when he says, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in where? In me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The reason that Christ is in you and that you are in Christ, according to John chapter 14, 17 through 20, is because the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. That's part of his role. That's part of his work. He unites you to Christ. And so Jesus is saying in that day, after the resurrection and after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwells the New Testament believer. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you will be united with Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He shines a floodlight on Christ and he joins you to Christ. So he's shining a light on Christ and he's pulling you in and he's saying, now you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you're united with Christ. You are not united with a demon. You are not united with the devil. You are not united with Abraham. Sorry to my kid who is the Father, Son, and Holy Moses, right? We're not united to Abraham. We're not united to Moses. We're not united with Elijah. You will be united with Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than the covenants. He's greater than the angels, and he's greater than even you being united with your spouse. You are in Jesus Christ, and he is in you. And that, my friends, is part of the work of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And no mind can fully understand the fact that Jesus lives in us. Not only is Jesus in us, but he says here in verse 20 that he is in his Father, and his Father is in him. This is a reference again to the hypostatic union, a technical and theological term describing the humanity of Jesus as being in a state of man and in the state of God at the same time. That's what he is. He's fully God and fully man. He says, I'm in my Father, and my Father is in me. And so we understand here that this is not modalism. 
or the idea that God changes from the Father and switches hats, and then he's the Son, switches hats again, and then he's the Spirit. That's called modalism, and that's actually heresy. God's Word says, no, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. We had talked a little bit a few weeks ago about the ontheological trinity and the economic trinity, the idea that there's three in one. And so all we're saying here again is that Jesus, this talk about him being in the Father and the Father in him, he's been teaching us this all along. In fact, look back up in verse 10, John 14, verse 10, when he said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And so this is something that you have to believe by faith. This is something that goes beyond human wisdom. And yet Jesus said here again in John 14, 20, then you will know and you will have this knowledge and you will be able to understand and comprehend at least to a greater degree that the Father and the Son are one. But not only, verse 20, does Jesus describe the intimacy in the relationship between the Father and the Son, but he describes the intimacy of the relationship between Jesus and you and me. He says, you and me and I in you. You and me and I in you. And we should ask the question, well, how can this be? I mean, we are earthen vessels. We are clay pots. We still have the remnant of sin. We still struggle every day. We are not perfectly holy. Positionally, we are because of Christ's righteousness, but practically we know we struggle every day. So how could this be that Christ is in us and we are in him? Well, I'll tell you how it can be. God created you in his image, which means you have a soul, which means you have the capability of being united with God. And then Christ recreated you in his image. And now as a Christ follower, you are walking hand in hand with Jesus Christ. He is in you and you are in him. And what, what, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to just give you four biblical illustrations which will help grasp this concept about how Christ is in you and how you are, are, are in him, because it's all through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you're united with Christ. Here's the four biblical illustrations, and you'll know these, but let's look at them. The first one is Jesus is the vine, and you are the, the branches. So you already know it. We could just close a little early today, go on home, get some lunch. You're, he's the vine, you are the what? The branches. Turn with me to John 15, 5, or let's look at 1 through 5. John 15, this is one way that we see that Jesus is in us and that we are in him, it's John 15, and we'll be there in just a few weeks, but Jesus says this, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. I am so thankful for this passage. I am so very thankful that this passage reminds me that every day I am receiving nourishment from Christ. Every day, as long as I'm in the vine, it's all good. As long as I'm in the vine, I receive the water to wash my soul. I receive nutrients to help me produce fruit. I receive stability to sustain me through life's trials. Every branch that does not bear fruit, though, he takes away. God will remove unbelievers from his church. God will remove unfruitful branches. And verse 6 says that he will throw them into the fire and they will be burnt. But every fruit, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So if you have no fruit at all, it means there's no true faith. True faith always results in true fruit. If you have no fruit, you can be a fruit inspector and say, this person probably doesn't have faith. It's ultimately God's Judgment, not ours, but he says about that branch that that branch will be thrown away and thrown into the fire. But for the one that's bearing fruit, guess what? Not necessarily a pat on the back. He prunes you, right? He cuts you. There are pats on the back. There are encouragement that God gives to us every day in the gospel. 
But God also disciplines those that he loves. I remember as a kid growing up, my dad was a biologist. We had a garden. We had two rather large grapevines in our garden. And every year, around the month of February, my dad would say, hey, Adam, it's time for us to go prune the grapevines. And I'm like, Dad, why, why are we pruning? The, I mean, why would we do that? Like, there's already like these vines, and of course, the leaves had fallen away through winter. But I would just kind of logically think there's longer vines here that's more fruit, right? And my dad said, no, that's not how it works. I'm like, well, how does it work, Mr. Biologist? And he's like, you have to cut back those branches to bear more fruit. I asked why. He said, because we want more fruit, not more foliage. You see, sometimes in the Christian life, we just think, oh, we got a lot going on here, all this foliage, but you're not really bearing fruit. The real fruit that the Spirit of God wants to produce in you takes constant reproof and correction and discipline. Why? To make you better, to help you be more efficient, to help you be more effective, to help you bear more fruit. And it's not always fun to get clip-clip. I get clip-clip by my wife sometimes, and I'm thankful for her. She's an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Thank you, baby. I get clip-clip by my kids sometimes. They're like, hey, Dad, you're getting a little worked up about this, aren't you? I get clip-clip from our elders sometimes. Tyson, slow down. Slow down, man. Sit down on earth. We're here. We're right here. You know, the idea is like we all need accountability. We all need to be clipped. We all need to be confronted. And that's just a little picture of what God's doing. Aren't you thankful we have a divine vine dresser that prunes us? Part of us being a part of his vine is I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to provide for you, but you're going to do what I say. And we're going to do it this way. And that's the way that we do it is through his word and in the power of the spirit, which is why we should always be praying like David does in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. And know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We should be like, Lord, where do you want to prune me? I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not producing as much fruit as maybe I could. Would you help me? The spirit of God's in me. I'm, I'm now connected to Christ. He's divine. I'm the branch. I'm not satisfied just bearing a little bit of fruit. Every day, I want to abide in Jesus. Every day, I want to abide in Jesus more and more. I want to abide in Jesus more than I want a house in the hills. I want to abide in Jesus more than I want the Dodgers to win the World Series. Somebody say amen. I want to abide in Jesus more than I want to go to Chick-fil-A. It's closed on Sunday anyway, right? I, I want to abide in Christ. I want to thrive in him. I want to flourish in him. And God forbid that I would ever flinch or recoil from God's word and his work in his life. Because apart from me, he said, you can do what? Nothing. To abide in him doesn't always mean you get a pat on the back. Sometimes you need to be pruned. Thank God that the, 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 the divine vine dresser prunes us so that we can bear much fruit. Let me give you a second biblical illustration about what it means to be in Christ and him to be in us. Number two, Jesus is the head and you are the body. Jesus is the head and you are the body. You hear the expression all the time about being part of the body of Christ. The body is all connected, but there has to be a control center. There has to be a command room. There has to be a head and that head is Jesus Christ which is why Ephesians 1, and 23 says that he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So in that passage, it's talking about Jesus Christ is the head and we are the body and everything is under him. It's a position of authority. It's a position of giving commands. It's the position of being our fearless leader. And so we see that Christ is the head and we are the body. We are connected to him. His blood is pumping through our veins. His DNA is written over every cell. His breath is in our lungs. Christ is our authority. He tells us what to do. He shows us the way to heaven. He shows us how to live on earth. He gives us our marching orders. Christ is the one that we look to for our direction and for our instruction and for our perspective that we need in order to live this life to the fullest. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's what we're doing as a body. You know, you're born 
and your body's growing. And even when you get your regular height, your body's still growing. You know what I mean, all right? So the idea is that we're still growing every day. And because Jesus is our head, we're growing up in him in every way. And we want to understand that part of growing up in him, according to that Ephesians 4.15, is that we speak the truth in love. That's part of what it means that you're growing up and to, to be like Christ. He's the head. And so in this world, we have to realize that there are many controversies. There are many political disagreements. There is much racial tension. But in every one of those issues, we need to be leading with love. As Christ followers, we want to be those who follow the head and part of his, as being part of his body, we want to love what he loves. Jesus loves unconditionally. Jesus' love is patient, and his love is kind, and his love does not envy, and it does not boast, and it is not arrogant, and it is not rude, and it is not irritable or resentful. His love never rejoices in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. And that's part of how we should be responding. If we are a part of Jesus' body, and if he is in us and we are in him, then God help us to love like he loves. Again, in first, uh, excuse me, Colossians 1.18, it says that he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for, all, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, in that cross-reference passage, it's continuing to explain what it means for him to be the head and for us to be the body. And for him to be the head means that he is first. He is the beginning. That verse doesn't say that he was from the beginning, but that he is the beginning. There was nothing before Jesus. He existed in the Godhead from eternity past. He was before creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. This means that Jesus was the first chronologically to be resurrected, never to die again. Everybody else who was resurrected died again. Jesus was resurrected. He never died again. And that's a picture of what will happen to you and me on that last day when we're resurrected, when the trumpet shall sound and we shall see him in the air and go and meet him as he is, that you'll never die again. And so he's just reminding us that Jesus is the head of his church, not me, not our elder team, not the person with the most money, not the person with the most talent, not the person with the most influence. No, 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 no. Jesus is the head. He has all authority over his church. It is our joy and our honor to follow him, to submit to him, to obey him. And part of being in Christ's body also reminds us that we all have an important, an important part to play as part of his body, right? You remember 1 Corinthians 12 when it says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we all are made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. And he goes on to talk about how a body has a foot, and a body has a hand, and a body has an ear, and a body has an eye, and so forth and so on. And he says that God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. You know what that means? No part of the body is dispensable. No part of Christ's body is expendable. And as a part of our church, if you're in Christ and you're part of our body, I want you to know today that as a part of our body, a part of this church, you are not replaceable. You are not inessential. You are not superfluous. I can't say that big word, all right? You're not, you're not like that, all right? You are you are not just a little part of our body that doesn't matter. Every single one of you counts. Like, we don't want to lose a limb. Like, we don't want to lose an eye. Like, we don't want to lose a tooth. Well, it's a baby tooth. We'll replace it with a wisdom tooth. Right? We need some more wisdom teeth. All right? But the idea is that we're all part of Christ's body, and we love you. And we want you all to stay here and to serve here and to sojourn with us. Whatever the Lord may bring. I mean, who knows what God's doing? I was telling our elders this week, sometimes you transition from a church building to something like this while your building's being redone or building a new building. And everybody always says, well, we're probably going to lose a lot of people during the transition and probably cut our attendance in half and giving in half. And, you know, not, our elders didn't say that. I'm just saying sometimes we have to consider all the possibilities. And I just remember thinking, you know what? What if God, in his kindness, wants to double our church while we're meeting in this temporary place? 
Now, is that something that God could do? Absolutely. Why, why would we for one moment just think, let's just start shedding parts of the body because we don't matter anymore? No, every one of you matters. And of course, we were way more concerned about going deeper than going bigger. You guys know that. This church will be whatever size God wants this church to be, but we want to go deep with God's Word, and we want to go deep with being part of the body of Christ, and we want to understand that Christ is the head, and we have the opportunity to encourage one another. I'm so thankful for you. Don't you ever feel that somehow you're not needed here? We need you. We want you. We love you. You're part of the body. Stay with us. Don't you go to some church across town. I'm going to have to go across town and find you, drag you back. Where you need to be, this is where you need to be. Can I get an amen to that? All right. You're, you're preaching it too. All right. Number C. Number C. Jesus is the cornerstone and you are the building. Don't you like how God in his kindness just gives us some alliteration himself sometimes? All these bees. Right? You're part of the body. You're a branch. You're a building. He's the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This passage clearly teaches that we are the earthly building which God inhabits. He doesn't inhabit a physical temple. He doesn't inhabit a cathedral. He doesn't inhabit a nice church building. He doesn't inhabit animals. He doesn't inhabit algae. All right, He inhabits you. He lives inside of you. You are his creation. We've been talking about this for weeks now and studying the fact that we are the dwelling place of God. Our church is not over there. It's right here. It's in you. We are fellow citizens of heaven, saints of God, and we are members of his household, and we're all built on Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the principal stone placed at the corner of the foundation. This stone helped anchor the foundation and provided a plumb line by which the whole building could be squared. And every stone placed after the cornerstone had to square with that cornerstone. And because of that, the cornerstone was the largest, most solid, and most carefully placed stone in any building. And you and I, as the church, are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who were built on Jesus Christ, who is that cornerstone. And we as the church are bricks in his building. We are blocks supported by his structure. We are part of the spiritual building called the church. And that means that every stone matters. Every stone has a part to play. Jesus could do it all by himself, but instead he wants to incorporate you and me to be joined together, growing into a holy temple. We are not just individual bricks in a brickyard. We are put together by the mortar of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? He's joining us together. We are, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called living stones. We are alive and we are built together to be a temple of the living God. We are individually and we are corporately as a local church. You're an intricate part of his plan and purpose in the world. And so this is an awesome example of how you are in Christ and he is in you. One last one and we're done. We're the branches, we're the body, we're the building, and we are the bride. The bride, Jesus is the groom and you are the bride. Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Marriage speaks to love, commitment, and harmony. Marriage is a grace provided for God, uh, provided by God for his glory. And not only was marriage designed for our enjoyment, but marriage was designed as a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And so when 
God considered the various forms of human relationships, a husband and wife in marriage, a parent and child in a family, a brother and sister as a sibling relationship. When he considered all those various forms of relationships, he chose marriage. He's like, this is the one that's going to be the picture of Christ in his church. And which is why he says at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, he says that this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery is is that we can be united with Christ in a relationship that's pictured by marriage. The mystery is that the hidden plan of God has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The mystery is that the quotation about marriage in Ephesians 5.31 is from Genesis 2.24, and it ties into the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is a covenant. It's a lifelong agreement between two people. It's for better or for worse. It is, again, a lifelong relationship of loving, giving, serving, leading, and submitting. Other than being saved, I would say that being married to Lisa has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. Every day, we want our marriage to point others to Christ. I want to speak of my wife in high regard. I want to praise her in the gates. I want to serve her and show her honor as the fellow heir of the grace of life. Lisa is a wonderful helpmate. She respects me. She submits to me. She follows me. And hopefully when our kids or our church or our community sees a wedding and a marriage of two that are seeking to honor God, hopefully they see Christ. That's the whole point that they would see Christ in us every day as they see that kind of love, sacrificial and joyful and a complete commitment to one another. When others see Lisa submit to me, they're reminded that that is our job as the church to submit to Christ who is our head. And therefore, the way we live in our marriage is really evangelistic. The whole thing is couples are supposed to be loving one another and serving to one another to such a degree that unbelievers are like, man, what's going on in your marriage? You mean your wife submits to you? I didn't know women did that anymore. And you say, well, you should talk to her because hopefully she's saying, I love to submit to my husband because he's a godly man and he is my head. And as a Christian, my joy is to submit to him as unto the Lord because I want to obey my God. You talk about marriage like that at work, and you're going to get people's attention real quick. And they're going to listen to what you have to say. And we have to understand that marriage is a precious picture of Christ in the church. And just as the marriage bed is to be undefiled, our relationship with Christ is to be undefiled as well. No mixing Jesus with other gods. No mixing Jesus with other loves. No mixing Jesus with other desires. Just like I would say to Lisa, honey, you mean all the world to me. Even more so, Christ, to him we should say, you are everything to me. You you are my only love, my, my only passion, my only pursuit, my only possession, my only focus, my only desire, my only interest, my only head, and my Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, gracious godly groom we have in the person of Christ. We are his bride, and we submit to him. And why wouldn't we want to? I mean, he loves you. He cares for you. He provides for you. He protects you. He's committed to you. He will never leave you or abandon you. And he's got a party planned at the end in Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. You like going to wedding receptions? You know how it is? Like you got the wedding and you got like, I'm committed to you and I'm committed to you and I love you and I love you. And then you have the party, right? And you're like, woo! And it's like, I can't wait for the party in heaven. Like I'm married to him now. He's providing for me now. There's covenant love right now. There's romance right now in the sense of affections are stirred up for Christ. But there is heaven to enjoy forever to be with him. Don't you want to be with him? It starts today, it goes to all eternity. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian today, then I just want to say, I'm so sorry. You're not a branch and you're not a bride and you're not part of the building and you're not part of the body, but you can be today on this very day. You could say, you know what? I'm tired of being on the outside looking in. I want to be a Christian. And the way that you do that is simply by repenting of your sin 
and saying, God, I've reached the end of myself. Would you please forgive me of my pride and my selfishness? I believe in God the Father, and I believe in God the Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus died and he was raised again, and I believe that he died for my son. And if you would just repent of your sin and turn to Christ, then you enter into a relationship with God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that will change your life forever. Won't you come to him today? If you're a Christian today, I hope that this little mini-series has encouraged you not to be like wacky about the Holy Spirit or unassuming about the Holy Spirit, but that you would say, you know what, I'm rooted and grounded even better in the Word of God because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. And because He dwells in me, I want to be holy. And I want to walk with Him and love Him and be filled with Him. So grow my love for you. Grow my passion for you, God. Thank you for indwelling me by your Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for some of these reminders that we need to hear day in and day out. Sometimes our weeks can be discouraging. Sometimes sin can be ongoing. And even though we confess it and we repent, we just know it's a battle. And yet we've been encouraged these last three weeks to see the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for showing us mercy Thank you for filling us every day with your spirit. I pray, God, that we would have greater clarity of what it means to be indwelt by the spirit. And I pray that we would have great encouragement, particularly here at the end of this message, about the fact that we can be part of the body of Christ, part of the building of Christ, a branch bearing much fruit, a bride looking forward to our groom coming to us. God, we pray that you would continue to stir us up to love you and to follow you and to walk hand in hand with you because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that indwelling that unites us with Christ. May we be in Christ today as Christ will always be within us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.